Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast focusing on horror in comic book form. My name is Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek into The Long Box of Darkness. Greetings, listeners. I'm glad to be back. I hope you are too. This week, we'll be looking at a classic in the making in the horror comic genre. It was published last year by Dark Horse Comics, featuring the art and storytelling skills of a horror master called Richard Corbin. Yes, it is what you think. Shadows on the Grave, issue one, released in December 2016. But before we get into the comic book, I need to take a bit of a time out to discuss the loss of someone very uh, prominent in the comic book world. Uh, Last week marked the passing of Len Wein, the co-creator of Swamp Thing and even such well-known characters as Wolverine and Lucius Fox from the Batman universe. He was a writer at DC Comics for a long time. He wrote some classic stories. He wrote some of my favorite Superman stories in DC Comic Presents. He had quite a few horror comics under his belt, mostly from House of Secrets and House of Mystery. But he would probably be best known as longtime editor at the publisher. He edited such seminal works as Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, so the great loss. He was only 69 years old. Rest in peace, Len Wein, one of the formative writers of comics, at least during my childhood in the early 80s. So with that bit of sad news out of the way, we'll get right into the comic. I should warn you, though, constant listeners, that... Uh, We started on a sad note, we'll probably end on a sad note, because in this comic book there's not a lot of happy, joyful moments, not a lot of uh, pleasant endings for most of the characters involved in these stories. Typical of Richard Corbin and his history uh, with EC, and um, or I should say his history with Creepy and the Eerie magazines, where he first became famous. And of course, he's a, he was a big fan of the EC Comics growing up. That's what influenced him most of all. So these stories are very much in the EC vein. And as you'll see, for those who've already read the comic, very bleak, very depressing endings. But there's a bit of humor thrown in by the horror hosts. Also, um, following on the 
time-worn tradition of having a horror host that introduces most of the tales. Here, Richard Corbin presents us with two of these interesting individuals. One is called Mag the Hag, and on the very first page of the comic, you see this grotesque, old, malformed, ugly woman throwing a bit of a a flirting pose, (laughs) sitting with her legs crossed as if she's a beach model posing for a photo shoot. So very disturbing imagery. And then we meet the second horror host, um, Gurgi Tate, obviously a riff on regurgitate. And Gurgi is um, a cloaked figure with a huge prominent schnoz poking out beneath his hood. You can't see any other features. And both of them are presenting the comic book in issue one on the very first page. And I'd like to read what Mag says, um, because that uh, holds true for the entire series. She starts off by saying, This is old Mag the Hag with my buddy in fear, Gurgi Tate, back from his premature retirement with a word about this comic. You may have noticed that the stories here are rendered black, white, and in gray tones. This is not because we are cheap. We are. Or poor, we are. The reason is that images and gray tones create and express a special unity and mood, which is most appropriate for short horror stories, at least the ones we want to tell. The setting for these is mainly a vintage Midwest American tableau. This setting also happens to be the time and place where old Mag and Gurgi grew up, not to mention the enslaved comic artist who draws these images. Here is a partial and tentative listing of possible themes we will be presenting within these pages. And then she goes on to rattle off a list of titles of possible horror stories. It's not so much themes. And then we meet Gurji. He's um, not very eloquent, but he manages to uh, get in a few words. And Gurji says, yes, I'm back, and I've got a lot of stories to tell. First is a more lengthy one of one of the amazing adventures of Danaeus. A distant grandnephew of Den. You won't want to miss a single inciting installment. Future chapters of Danaeus will reveal. And then he goes on to rattle off a couple of titles um, of the Danaeus stories, which is featured in every one of Richard Corbin's Shadows on the Grave issues to date. And as of this recording, there's been eight issues published. And a hardcover is slated to be released in, I think, uh, January or February um, 2018 next year so I'm looking forward to that but right now I've got the issues to keep in company this is the first issue I'm not going to do more than one as I did with Baltimore last week because um, it's there's a lot uh, compressed into one comic book every Shadows of the Grave issue features four stories of horror so we'll be discussing each of these stories spoilers lie ahead constant listeners so please bear with me If you haven't read the comic and you want to read it, please tune in halfway through the show. That's when we'll be doing our horror comic segment, as well as our horror comic creator profiles and horror comic bios. All right, we're going to take a little bit of a break and listen to an interview with Len Wein. The art of creating villains is fascinating. First and foremost, with the rarest exception, no villain believes they were a villain. I always think they're the hero of their own story. But the villain needs to be the yang to the hero's yin, or vice versa. You've got to have a villain who embodies the opposite 
elements or as many of the opposite elements of the hero as possible to give you something for conflict. Uh, Arcane was exactly the antithesis of Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing is big, huge, physical. Arcane, when you first meet him, is small, frail, and mental in so many different ways. And the character evolves from that. One character has what the other character wants. In the case of Arcane, he wants the physicality that he no longer has. He can barely get around. He's been trying from the time you meet him to build himself a new body. He's created these creatures that I call the Unmen, who are all his failed experiments. And Swamp Thing, who looked to be made of the earth and thus immortal, was what he wanted. I mean, the title of the story was The Man Who Wanted Forever. The Man Who Wanted Forever. What a great story. I'm probably going to cover that sometime in the future when we talk about Swamp Thing, which we haven't done a lot of yet. I can't believe it. My favorite comic book character of all time. And now that I think about it, Lynn Wien also created my favorite comic book villain, which is Anton Arcane, the aforementioned nemesis to the Swamp Thing, which Lynn was talking about in this interview. Well, enough reminiscing. It's time to get into the comic book, and get into the comic book we shall. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. Are you guys sniffing on newsprint or something? You think you really know what's happening around here, don't you? Well, I'll tell you something. You don't know shit, buddy. Yeah. You think we just work in a comic book store for our folks, huh? Actually, I thought it was a bakery. The first story in Shadows of the Grave, issue number one, is entitled String Along. And it's this horrid little tale of this traveling freak show uh, going through this small Midwestern farm town. Um, and it features a puppet show done by two very, very realistic puppets. Strangely realistic, especially to two young boys who are paid to see this puppet show one night. And then they're surprised by the realism and uh, by the acting of these two puppets who have strings that are manipulating them. But as it turns out afterwards, the boys sneak back to the van of this traveling puppet show, and they see uh, that what is going on is not quite what was presented during the show. These two puppets are in fact alive. They're two little mutants who, by the owner, the puppet master's own admission, has been kidnapped from a traveling freak show which they had been sold to by their mother uh, quite a while ago. And these two puppets are very cute, but very um, horrific looking too. They, they look quite scary. They've got, the, they've, they've got no lips to speak of, and they've got the, these huge protruding eyes. And they literally look like living puppets, but they're alive. They're these little, two little um, malformed uh, kids. And they're very small. They're probably like two feet in height each. Very thin, unable to really defend themselves. And it turns out that the puppet master likes to drink after hours and likes to beat them with his belt, especially if he um, thinks that they didn't perform well enough during the show. So these two kids stumble upon this scene of a beating being administered by the puppet master. And 
the brother and sister puppets, as it turns out, they're obviously twin twins. Um, they're lamenting their fate, and they have this weird language that they speak. They obviously can't speak in human words, so they just make this one sound over and over again. And um, as closely as I can approximate the sound, it's something like, <laughs> yeah, R-H-R-E-E-E, and then this is how they communicate. And there's different ways, of course, that they, they talk to each other, but basically re is the only word, and... Some have question marks, some some have different kinds of punctuation, but um, the sister puppet's crying and she's pulling out this chain around her neck, which entraps them. And um, the puppet master arrives drunk off his rocker and he starts to beat them with the belt and they're bleeding profusely. And the two boys who snuck back, they want to save these puppets. So um, after the beating is done one of the boys sneaks back and he opens up the the van and he sees this bleeding little puppet lying recovering from his wounds it's the boy puppet and the boy puppet asks for the little kid's help and he points towards the snoring puppet master who's now passed out drunk on his bed and the boy puppet asks the little boy to cut the cord that binds them cord that's been tied around their necks and uh, the boy uses a pocket knife to cut the cord and then the two puppets go on a bit of a uh, revenge driven rampage the boy puppet especially he's very angry at what has been done to his sister so he pours out a can of gasoline um, reserved for the van itself onto the carpet of this puppet show um, and then intending to set the whole um, van alight when suddenly the sound wakes up the puppet master and he grabs this little boy and he takes the skinning knife and this little boy puppet's being hoisted up by his neck and the uh, owner's now the puppet master's now um, understandably incensed he's ready to gut this little boy but the girl puppet rolls underneath his feet tripping him and he falls down breaking his ankle and then the boy puppet grabs the knife which had fallen and stabs him in the throat. So the puppet master is, uh, is done for. Um, suddenly, uh, which I don't know what happened, but I think they knocked over a lamp during the melee. And the lamp ignites the gasoline that has been spilled. There's a huge explosion. The little kid that came to help the puppets barely escapes with his life. And the entire van burns down and then um, Mag the Hag ends the story by saying that the next morning the police found only the charred remains of the puppet master and the remains of what looked like two small animals the end suitably terrifying tale but also quite horrific and grotesque because of the suffering um of these two very cute but very weirdly drawn little puppets. And Richard Corbin is a master drawing these figures that creep you out. These two little puppets with their big bright eyes. They seem to have no eyelids, no lips at all, just these huge teeth and this weird way of talking. <laughs> I, 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 that story just stuck with me for weeks on end. It was so disturbing. It really disturbed me. 
Okay, for that story, this week we're going to be using the Bloody Valentine um, writing system. Even though it's not Valentine's Day, we're going to be using the Bloody Va Valentine writing system because here in Taiwan it was recently uh, Chinese Valentine's Day. A couple of weeks ago, actually, but um, we're using the Bloody Valentine system. So um, I'm going to give this... Um, this story, nine out of ten bloody valentines, because it disturbed me, and I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't stop thinking about it after I read it. So, definitely worth a read. Then we get to the second story in the comic book, which is called "Roots in Hell." Um, this is not my, one of my favorite stories, but still creepy enough to obviously warrant a mention. The two people are flying on a small private plane across the Pacific Ocean, and they end up. Um, flying into some bad weather, their little plane crashes onto uh, in the water, and they swim towards this, or the plane washes up on the beach of this island, and the island is so it's only these two people; they have nobody else to help them, and this island is dotted with these freakish trees. Um, it seems like some kind of a f uh, fungi or some kind of a mold is growing out from the middle of these trees, making them uh, appear as if they have faces. And they comment on these weird trees, but obviously, you know, there's nothing they can do. They decide to camp on the beach. And uh, they wreck this makeshift tent. They find some fruit on the island. They eat the fruit. And then the next day when they wake up, the it's a, it's a man and a woman. So the man, uh, the pilot, he starts to... Uh, feel uh, sick, terribly ill, and he starts convulsing and running around. and And then the woman observes that he's actually changing shape. His fingers and limbs and everything is changing into wooden protrusions. And he runs, emitting this horrible you know, scream. And the woman runs after him, and she says, "Come back, come back!" And uh, he finally turns back towards her, and he has been metamorphosed into this living tree and he chases after her and she runs back to the beach and she and he keeps chasing after her even though he's this walking living tree and the further he runs the more he mutates and she runs back to this life raft which they um, inflated the previous night after they salvaged what they could from the airplane and then she climbs on the life raft to escape this tree monster and he follows her into the ocean she rose for her life and then she finally rose um, far enough where he cannot reach her and he seemingly drowns and she's uh, terrified by this experience she decides she's not going back to the island she's going to stay on the boat and she floats and floats for how many days and then finally a couple of weeks later some islanders on a small boat of their own find this floating raft and the only thing in it is this tree covered in this weird looking moss so obviously the woman had also transformed into one of these uh, demonic trees and the islanders well according to bag the hag sink the boat scuttle it the raft and just let it sink beneath the waves rather than investigate any further wise very wise of them and then we've got a typical tale um, of Richard Corbin's 
called For Better or Worse. This is in the kind of the easy vein, shock suspense stories. Um, it's definitely horror, but um, it's about a couple who have marital problems, and that happens in EC quite a lot. One of the um, uh, people involved in the sordid tale decides to enact revenge against uh, her or his partner, and then uh, they do so, they're successful, but then something uh, supernatural steps in and the partner returns in a suitably horrific way as either a ghost or a vampire or a zombie. This is sort of similar to that, but it's got a bit of a different twist at the end. Um, so you've got this husband who's a drunkard and his wife, she hates him and he beats her and, and they keep fighting constantly, arguing with each other so she can't take it anymore. She gives him a, a shot of whiskey, a bottle of whiskey and she's poisoned the whiskey and her husband drinks it he realizes it's poison he smacks her through the face but before he can uh, kill her he convulses and dies uh, the poison worked quite fast then uh, the sheriff arrives and he's come because of complaints by the neighbors I think he's the town sheriff actually he could just be a town councilman or something and he says to this girl who's called Zula, Zula, I'm coming on behalf of the neighbors and they want you to stop. Uh, the fighting's been going on too long. This is insane. You guys have got to do something about your marriage. And then he says, can I also talk to your husband? And she says, oh, he's not available, obviously, since she just killed him. But then a voice comes from uh, within the house saying, um, what's going on here? And the husband walks out. And he's got the whiskey dribbling down his chin, so obviously he didn't die. And then um, they promise that they will you know, stop fighting with each other and placate the councilman or the sheriff or whatever he is. He's dressed in civvies, so I don't really know what he is, but he leaves. And then the woman, Zula, she can't understand this turn of events. Her husband's alive and walking and drinking his whiskey, and she checks the... A poison, the bottle of poison that she emptied into his whiskey flask and she can, cannot believe that it didn't kill him. Um, it was really enough poison to, to fell an elephant. So um, then our horror host Mag the Hag appears and she says of course Zula doesn't understand that something strange has happened to her husband um, that he is in fact now Undead. He, he's so stubborn that he refused to die. And it turns out that after a couple of months, you know, people come to visit. They're, they're wondering what happened to Zula and her husband. Why haven't they seen much of them? So um, Zula keeps turning them away because what she has, in fact, in her house is, is very horrifying. She doesn't sh want to show this to anybody or share it with anybody. So eventually she can't stand... Um, what she has to live with any longer. So she runs out, she runs away from her house, runs into the road outside, and a car hits her. And it turns out it's uh, one of the neighbors. Um, Zula's injured. They take her back to the house to see what's going on, and they call her husband, who's called Jake, and they investigate the house, and they find his maggot-riddled riddled corpse sitting in the living room, still talking and drinking and boozing with maggots and he's, he's just a skeleton now uh, with strips of flesh attached with all these maggots 
crawling out of his mouth and eye sockets and ears, but he's still talking and complaining about worms and maggots and how much they itch. And all three of the, the visitors run out of the room, tired of investigating and frightened out of their minds. And then uh, Magdag finishes by saying, they all got the hell out of there fast, all except Zulia. She was pretty much resigned to Jake's condition. They both got along fine after that. No more fighting. <laughs> so I guess that's one way to resolve marital strife, if the partner stays alive. And then the fourth tale is one featuring Danaeus. Um, and this tale is called Dreams and Portents. Now, the horror host introducing this tale is, of course, Gurji Tate, with his long nose peeking out from beneath his hood. And uh, Danaeus is a character that um, Richard Corbin has drawn for quite a while, one of Richard Corbin's own creations. He's sort of like a Conan-type character or Hercules um, type of character. He's this Greek hero with prodigious strength, and there's no feat too small for Danaeus. He's always called upon by the king to perform miraculous feats or destroy monsters or, or armies or enemies of uh, the Greek Empire. So this story is no different. Uh, Danaeus um, has to appear at a celebration for the king, for the emperor, um, and to honor the, the emperor during the celebration, he has to perform his customary feats of strength. But before that, an oracle has a vision, seeing that Danaeus is going to be a threat to the king. And the vision is drawn of, in a, a striking um, surreal manner by Richard Corbin. This oracle basically during the vision she floats upwards and she's completely blind um, but she with this type of um, magnifying glass which they probably didn't have back then we're talking about 3,000 you know years ago but she uses this type of magnifying glass instrument to observe these shadowy figures um convulsing in the air and as she points the magnifying glass to them she can see a small part of their shadowy bodies clearly and see who they are or what they are and she just catches an eye or an ear or a hair here and there but if she looks long enough she can see who it is and um, she calls this magnifying glass her necroscope and what she's using to see is her inner eye. So her her face, this oracle's face, is completely devoid of any eyes. It's like skin has grown over the sockets where her eyes are supposed to be. But when she moves the necroscope in front of her own face, she does have this huge um, third eye or uh, only eye, cyclopean eye peering at these shadowy figures. So she's trying to discern the future and then she realizes what's going to happen. And she predicts that Danaeus is going to kill the king of Greece. So Danaeus is unaware of the oracle's prediction. He uh, is on his farm with his wife and daughter. And it's time for him to travel to the king's celebration. Now Danaeus is this hugely muscled um, giant of a man. Um, as only Richard Corbin can draw him. Um, his muscles are almost like as, as big as giant watermelons beneath his skin and his legs are like tree trunks and he walks while well, leading his mule all the way to um, the city and um, 
when he gets there, he you know lifts a fat guy above his head, the the, the treasure lord, to show his uh, great strength. The king is soon to be pleased, and um, the oracle shows up, and she says, without a doubt, um, this is he, the man who is a threat to the king. And that's where the story ends. So the story of Danaeus continues on in Shadows of the Grave. It gets really good. Um, I'll do Shadows of the Grave um, issue two soon, and the second issue is great. You get to meet the monster that Danaeus has to eventually fight. Suitably horrific, um, drawn beautifully and you know grotesquely by Corbin in his own inimitable way. So I'm going to get into that pretty soon but for now that's it for shadows of the grave so i'd recommend that to any of you listeners who haven't picked that up yet or haven't read it but if you have revisit this comic it's it's great to reread it and like i say the hardcover collection is going to come out next year february so that's going to be worth it so you got to jump on that highly recommend it now i forgot to give a rating for the second story um about the living trees i would give that only three bloody valentines out of 10. It has a good ending where the girl who escaped the island on the raft changed into a tree herself, but that's about it. I didn't really like the design of these walking trees. It didn't look very scary, but Corbin's a master, so I don't want to diss him further. But that was my least favorite of the bunch. And the second story featuring Jake and his wife Zula is also a classic horror tale in the vein of, let's say, the eerie or creepy magazines in EC. So I, I really love that stuff. I would give that um, tale a more optimistic six Bloody Valentines out of ten. And then the story of Danaeus is hard to rate because it's an ongoing tale. Um, so, But the, because of the art alone, wow, Corbin draws uh, these ancient Greeks and their cities and their profiles with these prominent noses, he draws it them very well. And Danaeus himself, whoa, uh, really, really great character, uh, if you're talking about visually speaking alone. So I would give that a 7 out of 10, 7 bloody valentines out of 10. You've got to pick up Shadows of the Grave. It's so worth it. All right, after the break, we'll be back with our ever-popular Erin segment. That's right, folks, she's back from her travels. Let's listen what she's been up to. Well, we're back with our ornery little spitfire, Erin. Hi, Erin. How's it going? Fine, I guess. So you recently celebrated your birthday, didn't you? Yeah, I'm one year older again. Did you get any presents? A few. What did you get? Some stuff. Come on, tell, tell us, what kind of stuff? One of them is manga. Really? You got some manga? Which ones? Cat Art Boy and the Kurosaki Cork Dairy Service Omnibus. Volume 1 or Volume 2? Or 3? Oh, okay. Volume 1. Nice. So, I wonder who gave you those gifts. He must have been very generous. 
Yeah, someone's too generous. Only give me this. Gave me these two books. Oh well, I'm glad you're so grateful. So you also recently went to see a movie, didn't you? Yeah, I went to see it yesterday. Tell us about it. What did you think? Yeah, it is incredibly scary. I had to look away a few times and cover my eyes. <laughs> so, how much would you give it out of ten? Maybe an eight. Would you go to see it again? Maybe not. Like you, you wouldn't go to see it again. Well, you never know. I'm, I'm not a chicken like you. <laughs> well, everybody, that's our Erin segment for this week. Until next time, right, Erin? Yeah, until next time, maybe. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a little bit of a break. When we come back, we'll discuss horror profiles. Do you want to know more about who creates your nightmares? Do you yearn for information about the people responsible for your sleepless nights? Well, Herman's horror profiles will scratch that itch. So here it is, constant listeners, horror profiles, also known as profiles of horror. <laughs> this week in our horror profile section, we'll be looking at Richard Corbin, the man himself who illustrated Shadows of the Grave and many, many other classic horror works. Um, I think he was born in 1940, and then he attended the Kansas Institute of Arts, and where he got a degree in fine arts. And um, he's most noted for his work in the creepy and eerie magazines. He also worked extensively for the heavy metal magazine in the States, which is an imprint of the Metal Herland, a French science fiction uh, comic book magazine. And um, I think his career probably took off around 1975 or so, but he had been doing underground comics since 1965 at least. And he's done a number of covers, and I think he's also noted for doing the Meatloaf album cover, Bad Out of Hell. Uh, he's worked with Rob Zombie and Steve Niles on various um, projects, movie projects, movie-related stuff. And um, I think uh, during the 70s, when he made a name for himself, he was known as primarily, unfairly so I should say, a man who uh, enjoyed illustrating erotic, erotic, often sexual uh, stories, which isn't really what his horror is about. Um, but he, because of a few stories that he did where there wasn't a sexual element, uh, unfortunately that became a thing. But his stories are very horrific in the way he draws people. He draws them in a very... Um, deformed kind of way and all of his characters don't look uh, true to, to, to the actual human form they're basically uh, cartoonish versions of people but um, exaggerated to the point where they become grotesque and disturbing to look at so that's what makes his art so distinctive but um, after the 1970s as I say his uh, creepy and eerie and heavy metal era 
he continued on into the 80s where he created a character by the name of Den. Now, Den is um, a notable fantasy hero kind of character because he um, takes a borrows a bit from Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, John Carter of Mars, a bit from Conan. He also fights some Lovecraftian monsters. But he basically is a nerd who then is transported to this world called Neverwhere, which has nothing to do with Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. And in Neverwhere, he finds himself transformed into this giant, hulking, handsome barbarian. So he has a number of um, adventures in the sword and sorcery vein, uh, lots of horror interspersed there. As I said, the Lovecraft monsters, uh, the horror dimensions from Lovecraft make uh, appearance. And uh, a lot of erotic adventures also thrown in there. So again, Richard Corbin was labeled as the man who likes to draw that kind of stuff, which is unfair. I mean, most artists who do independent comics are crumb, for instance. Uh, they delve into that kind of stuff because there's no limits, no restrictions. They want to portray things as honestly as they can. And personally for me, if um, the human form is portrayed uh, and um, there's some eroticism or sexual content, it just enhances the horror. I'm, I'm thinking here about Cl Clive Barker's stuff, uh, about numerous movies and film, which um, like the Halloween movies, the Friday the 13th movies, which which kind of merges the two genres, uh, eroticism and horror. And uh, that really does uh, enhance the whole effect for me, personally speaking. But Corbin's good with that. He can make any mundane situation appear horrific just by illustrating it in this weird style that he has. So he continued on um, through the 80s and eventually... Um, he started working for Marvel um, in the early 2000s. Um, the, the 1990s, he was a little bit quiet. He did a lot of uh, independent comics on, on, under Fantagore Press, which was his own um, publishing company. But in the 19, uh, or 2000s, he started to work for Marvel and did a couple of Marvel Max comics, uh, notably Luke Cage, which was added decidedly horror, horrific bent to it. Um, he also did a Star the Slayer, um, a riff off the old Marvel character and for the Max imprint. And he did Punisher, End of Days, where the Punisher has to survive this nuclear holocaust or uh, it has to survive in the world, a post-apocalyptic world. So he's done work for the major publishers uh, to the best of my knowledge, he hasn't done anything for DC, um, but there might be something I'm missing there. He's had such a long and varied career, but he's still going strong. He illustrated quite a few Hellboy stories, Hellboy in Mexico being one of my favorites. And um, he's, uh, at the moment, as I say, putting out Shadows of the Grave, which comes out fairly regularly, once a month. So he's had this long career, and if you want to check out some of his stuff, be sure to pick up um, a Dark Horse publication by the name of The Best of Richard Corbin, which collects basically all of his uh, eerie and creepy covers and most of his stories that he did for that magazine. And that'll give you a taste of Richard Corbin.
our horror comic history section will be back next week. I'm prepping something big, and I need to get my facts straight, so it's taking a while to put together. And we'll also do our horror character bios next week as well. But I'd like to leave you with a few recommendations, stuff that I've been reading and watching. First off, like Aaron mentioned earlier during the Aaron segment, uh, go and watch It. It's a great movie. I had a great time going to watch it, and it's really scary. The CGI takes a little bit away from the horror, but it's much scarier than the original TV series or TV miniseries. So I would recommend It, and uh, totally different from the book, actually. Uh, they couldn't fit everything in, obviously, but they did it really well. They they went in a different direction than the book a little bit, but the basic story is still the same. So for Stephen King fans, awesome movie. Please go to go and watch it. Enjoy yourself. And then um, what have I been reading lately that I can recommend? Well, I've been working my way through The Scarlet Gospels, the novel by Clive Barker. It was published sometimes last year already. So I'm late to the party, but of course I'm a big Clive Barker fan. I just haven't read him in a while, and I really enjoy this novel because it, um, uh, it basically has Clive Barker's two most well-known characters facing off against each other. You've got the Cenobite Pinhead versus Harry Demur, the supernatural detective, um, detective of the supernatural, I should say that features prominently in quite a few of Barker's books, and I'm really enjoying it. The book is incredibly violent, bloody, uh, lots of gore, just the way I like it. And then um, I want to recommend something I just played the theme music of. Uh, It's a motion comic, which I stumbled upon by accident um, on YouTube. And it's called Silent Horror. The uploader is um, called Horror Nights. And the motion comic itself is called Silent Horror. There are, to my knowledge, more than 14 of these silent motion comics. Uh, No dialogue, uh, no sound effects, just this eerie music permeating the panels that flip by. And it tells a story of horror. Great twist endings, truly horrific stuff. It's in a kind of black and white manga vein. So I would definitely recommend that. Go and check out Silent Horror on YouTube right now if you can. I'm addicted to this uh, channel already. Like I said, the channel and the uploader is called Horror Night. So go and find her or him. It's so worth it. Worth your time. And then in terms of comics... What I could recommend is a recent read that I purchased and I found it uh, definitely compelling. It's a collection, in fact, by Dark Horse Comic Books called The Dark Horse Book of Horror. Nice, thick, hardcover. Not as tall as your usual trade paperback or collected edition. It's It's sort of the size of the Dark Horse Omnibus editions kind of similar to the Grendel Omnibus uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4. But this is a hardcover. It's got roughly, I'm paging through it right now, whoa, 360 plus pages, uh, full color, uh, featuring um, 
the uh, stories by Pete Craig Russell, Plim Robbins, Gary Gianni, Paul Lee, and Brian Horton. Dave, colors by Dave Stewart, of course. Um, Tony Millionaire. You've got Mike Mignola in here. You've got Evan Dorkin and Jill Thompson's Beasts of Burden. Lots of Hellboy stories. And basically what this Dark Horse Book of Horror is, is it collects three hardcovers, which Dark Horse put out over the last decade or so. Um, the first is the Dark Horse Book of Witches, of Hauntings, sorry, the Dark Horse Book of Hauntings. Then the Dark Horse Book of Witchcraft, the Dark Horse Book of the Dead, and the Dark Horse Book of Monsters. Um, I'll read a few of the titles of the stories for you. Uh, you've got Dr. Carp's Experiment, The House on the Corner, Spirit Rescue, Life, Death, and Olfactory Delusions, The Troll Witch, a Hellboy Tale, Mother of Toads, that's an original story by Clark Ashton Smith, contemporary of Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, The Truth About Witchcraft, which is sort of an interview with a real high priestess um, done by one of the Dark Horse um, interviewees or interviewers I should say. You've got um, The Ghoul, The Hungry Ghosts, Old Garfield's Heart, The Ditch, Death Boy, The Stain, To Weave a Lover, The Hydra and the Lion, A Tropical Horror, A Boy, A Dog and His Boy, which is an, a kind of an inversion of the Harlan Ellison story, Queen of Darkness, Kago Notori, uh, the Magicians, Let Sleeping Dogs Lie, and many more. I'm uh, more than halfway through this book. Uh, I read the original four collections way back when. Um, I actually don't know what happened to them. They must be here somewhere. But I decided to purchase this book because it collects all of them together. Nice. And it, plus it looks great on the shelf. It's got this little, on the spine, it's got um, a little picture of a raven very Edgar Allan Poe-ish on the very top. So it looks great. I had to get it. I would recommend that you do too. Um, it's a little bit pricey, but I think you can get it on Amazon for about 25 to 30, between 25 and $30. So that's it for this week, people. Um, I enjoyed doing the show again. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. But I'll be back again next week. If you want to leave any feedback, please send it to darklongbox at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at darklongbox. And please check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Until then, I'll see you next week for another peek into the long box of darkness.